Good morning, everybody. It's February 12th. I'm Charlie Fink, and it's This Week in XR with Ted Shilowitz, futurist at Paramount Pictures, and our guest this week, Eric Shamblin, uh, SVP of Growth at Media Monks, which is a, uh, a digital advisory slash agency. Uh, welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining us for the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, very, honored, very honored to be here. Um, well, we're happy to have you. So uh, why don't we start? It's a slow news week, folks. I got to tell you up front, unfortunately, no one acquired anybody. Uh, there were some fundraising rounds by smaller companies and a few uh, media announcements. The one I'm excited about is Arden's Wake is now available for the Rift. Uh, that's from Penrose Studios that did the award-winning short Alumet, which is free on Steam. Um, so I, it's, it, I saw it two years ago at Tribeca. It's great that they've finally been able to release it. Uh, I don't know what the delay was about, um, but this is a very substantial studio. And the director, Eugene Chung, has been described by many, including me, as the D.W. Griffith of virtual reality. <laughs> so uh, that's my one plug on content this week. But Eric, tell us about Media Monks and what it is the SVP of growth is doing. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to. And I, I do want to say I'm a big fan of Penrose. Uh, I, I think they've done some amazing work. And I'm very, very curious to, to see the final form. Arden's Wake is quite good, and it's a natural step up from Alamed. Yeah, I, I think Ted and I had a conversation around Alamed a couple of years ago. It was yeah. just, I, I, that, for me, is one of the, my all-time favorite Thanks. pieces. Beautiful. So, um, but yeah, Media Monks, uh, we're a digital agency. We set the... Uh, intersection of content data and technology. Uh, we love to sort of combine creative and technology in very, very compelling ways. Uh, we're multinational, 40 offices, now 4,000 people globally, been around about 20 years. Uh, our core client set is, you know, it's all the big guys, it's what you call the seven sisters, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Tencent, Alibaba. Um, and so we're, um, you know, deeply committed to being great partners to them and pretty much all efforts, uh, but not exclusive to them. You know, we, we just announced big partnerships with BMW, Mondelez. Right. And um, a lot of these companies, to be fair, different divisions and different groups within the companies have different relationships with different vendors, right? So which groups are you typically working with inside of these giant companies? Uh, with Google, it's, it's Alphabet direct actually, so not technically Google anymore. Um, but, and then it's it's their uh, assistant group. So we work a lot with, um, you know, the digital assistant groups. We do a lot of voice work these days and that's both for Amazon and digital or and mm -hmm. Google. Um, and then a lot of it is in kind of their strategy and product development teams. So we were seen as kind of a leading UX consultant. Mm -hmm. um, so. If they're going to launch a new product, they'll ship it to us. We'll workshop it. You know, how are kids going to max out the credit card on Alexa, kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, um, and so just kind of kind of working with them on 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 best practices, and then, you know, just uh, adding that level of um, excellence in terms of user experience design. It's it's something we get sought after quite after quite a lot. I think I think it's really interesting, uh, Eric. You mentioned that term, the seven sisters. Um, that is a, that has a lot of meaning, uh, interestingly enough, from a philosophical standpoint as to how technology links with growth and duplication of services and goods, right? So like Charlie and I talked about this and I actually was on a long two hour podcast yesterday where we really got into this about 
the, the law of seven, that these days when there's some sort of thing that can grow from this giant tree trunk of the public internet and data services and silicon, you almost instantly get seven versions of it. You, you get, you know, the, these, the, the fang companies plus a few others all have so much duplication and overlap of services. They all have a messaging client. They all have a photo client. They all have a music client. They all have an e-commerce client. They all have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's such an interesting time as we debate, you know, how innovation happens. And Charlie and I have had discussions about this, how innovation happens in various ways. And are we thwarting so much innovation because we just try and go everything from the same tree these days. We, this, this tree that is so powerful that we can all branch off it so easily. Where is really the new, right? And, and it's an interesting thing to discuss. Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made for the breakup of the tech companies, not, not just because of the issues around AI and social media. Uh, you could argue that, you know, AT&T was heavily politicized. The breakup of AT&T in the 80s was heavily politicized. It was going to hurt the economy, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And the truth is, it was the beginning of a tech revolution. Yeah, it spawned so, all kinds so of So many companies, Verizon, um, yeah. you, and it's hard to say, right? Uh, 40 years later, those companies are much better off. It created much more wealth, much more innovation. So you got to start to think that, you know, maybe YouTube should be independent. Maybe it isn't right for it to be part of Google. And it has absolutely crushed Vimeo and Vivo and other services uh, that would have emerged. And had any of those other services been successful, they would have immediately been acquired. So I do think that it's a poisoned competitive environment in that respect. And you do end up with these very powerful silos who, who want to have it their way. And so you end up with Microsoft having all the same uh, features as Zoom and uh, as Microsoft Office. And it, yeah, oversimplifies it, it, yeah, but it, it oversimplifies it, but the only way for them to bring innovation is through acquisition now, right? Like, so, that, and then they bring it, they buy a new smaller company that's got a little bit of buzz to them and then they scale it dramatically, but then all the other seven sisters have to clone it. Right, all right. We've got to your point. A chat app. We we've just bought a, an amazing chat app. Right. Well, now they all need chat apps. So. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately for for the Fang companies, Zooms uh, is is much better, and it's much better for all the things that you can't see. We're on Zoom right now. If we were on Meet, if we were on Teams, the quality of this call would be much worse. Their noise cancellation, their throttling uh, to even this out uh, behind our images, unseen to people who use Zoom, is quite remarkable. And all you have to do is have a Google Meet conference to come to appreciate what Zoom has accomplished here. Mm. But at, at the same time, you know they're racing to add those features to Meet, right? I'm sure well, they are, but this is kind of a Siri case, isn't it? I mean, Apple knows that Siri sucks eggs. It is the worst voice assistant. Anybody who's used Google Home or used Alexa, I used Alexa for two minutes and I was like, why can't Siri be like Alexa? <laughs> and so Apple hasn't put a bullet in Siri. Yeah, they're working behind the scenes, but it's taking them a long time. I mean, in the context of Apple going on and on and on, you know, it's like being at Disney, you know, what's a few years, but still at least, you know, rounding the first turn 
you know, they're way behind on digital assistance. Well, I think you make an interesting point, Charlie, that maybe at the end of, an, of, of a deep analysis, and there's lots of nuanced debate points about this in all ways, shape, and form, it takes like some academic you, go to research that. Yeah, well, as you run, you know, you, you do long educational things with your students. Both Eric and I have done like many hour long discussions about these things. It's very difficult to sort of like debate all the pros and cons of this. But there's an interesting point that you made about maybe like all of these very giant companies don't need to try and be good at everything, right? Maybe they can just find the, the three things that they're really good at. And, and leave some others to find really good other pieces. It, it's a very interesting discussion. And I'm very much in the middle of yeah. like, you know, when, when we talk about like, should these big companies be broken up in various ways? There's a really interesting argument about the fact that there is actually still real choice in the market. Now, you know, there's a argument that, well, the, those choices are hidden and they're harder to find and you have to go out and get them. But, um, it was interesting when, you know, Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg got into a little bit of this, this very polite pissing match, right? And uh, they have really, really smart lawyers on both sides that were finding these interesting arguments to make. And I thought a really interesting argument was that the, the fact that, you know, Apple promotes and presents their uh, messaging app as the app that you, you would use to do messaging, and we all use it, right? Um, well, you have to go through an extra layer to get to the Facebook Instant Messenger or WhatsApp or WeChat or something like that, right? Um, they don't promote the other ones, and nor really should they, right? I mean, it's their competitive environment they own. It's a private company. They do it, what they want to do to help their shareholders and help their ecosystem. But it's a really interesting thing to kind of get into the, the nuances of what it means to be the most dominant player mm -hmm. and actively prevent others from getting in while saying, well, no, no, it's all there. You just have to go find it, right? Like you were pointing about uh, Vimeo and other, other competitors to YouTube. It's just- what do, you, what do you think, Eric? Way in here. Yeah, no, no, I was just, I just think that's echoes of Netscape versus Explorer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like Explorer was built into the, the OS or the, the PCs and Netflix or Netscape had a real, real problem with that and kind of went after them. Right. What, what a few landmark cases, as I recall. Uh, so it's it's going to be fun to see how that plays out. I, I, yeah, I think they're just get they're under so much pressure these titans to not let any part of the market go. You know, if if a competitor suddenly run, runs an email app, uh, email application, they you know, all, make share, all the shareholders are like, why don't we do that too? And 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 so suddenly there's pressure to just keep duplicating services. And so yeah. I do, you know, to, to your larger point, Ted, I do think there is kind of an abundance of choice right now. I think. I think it simplifies the market to say there's only two titans. So there's there's seven sisters. Right? There's there's a lot of choice out there, and those are just the big ones. There's a whole, you know, the telcos are aren't even in those technically. Right. They're, 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 and then and then you get something like Reddit that has become this really popular moment in culture for a certain layer of people that actually you know willing to spend the time to use that as their client to use that as their communication tool, right? Um, and, and then you get TikTok, which kind of like evolves in, you know, some way, shape and form, but obviously funding wise, you know, <laughs> they get a lot of money from these, from these giant tech companies. So it's, it's very, it's just super interesting to think about it. It's a fascinating area to discuss. So there is one news story that I think could provoke a good conversation here. Yep. Um, a company named Fable Studio created a VR film with an AI character named Lucy at the center of it. Mm -hmm. called Wolves in the Wall, and it's won all sorts of awards. It was based on a Neil Gaiman story. 
and they have taken the AI, Lucy, who is your friend and sort of the heroine, you know, you play an imaginary friend because you have to be someone in VR, right? So you play Lucy's imaginary friend, but she's AI and she kind of figures out from what you, the choices you make, the kind of person you are. Uh, and, and you get that role in the adventure, which is not the same every time. So interesting stuff. So they pulled Lucy out now. And so Lucy is an independent, you know, 10 year old, you know, artist uh, who's attending Sundance, uh, which was last week, not as a star, but as a filmmaker. And, you know, she presented this little silly version of Dracula that looks like it would be made by a 10 year old. Um, and interacted with the audience and with uh, other filmmakers. And in fact, Fable wants this to be the beginning of a new kind of role-playing game mm. where, where you make this friend with, it's not an imaginary friend, it's an AI that knows you. Mm. And so the next time you talk, it'll ask you questions about you. So um, it's in beta now and they're developing other characters. They've got two female characters uh, that they're getting ready to launch. Uh, one is a Parisian singer and the other one is an American athlete. Uh, and again, you know, these are so you can have an, a real imaginary friend. Uh, it, it is quite amazing uh, that uh, AI has developed, you know, that quickly, because when you think about all the technologies that have to support this, uh, you know, it is quite an impressive achievement and a harbinger of things to come. You know, combine that with the announcement of, you know, Epic having a browser-based uh, avatar creation tool, which is, you know, hyper-realistic, uh, you know, just suggests that, that the age of avatars and uh, AI characters will soon be upon us and we'll start seeing them everywhere, um, you know, inside of games and when you call a customer care center. Yeah, it makes me think of some of the work we're doing now. There's been a whole rush of digital influencers as well, completely artificial influencers, particularly out of Japan and Korea. And these are completely created digital humans that- Bill Michaela. Yeah. <laughs> and that has she's, right, she's a social media star and she's got 5 million followers. That said, that is a one to many, yep. right? She's, she's like a YouTuber. Um, and in this, it's intimate. It's one to one. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think it's an interesting kind of area to think about because I actually hearken back to, I always try and find where was the like beginnings of the inspiration of that part of the branch of this big tree that we grow from, right? The big, the big internet data silo silicon tree. Um, and I actually think about the Tamagotchi. Remember the Tamagotchi? I, I thought right? of that immediately. Is, is the Tamagotchi is kind of the origin story of Lucy, right? Is is if this from the late 90s it was that little keychain fob that had your character with you all the time yeah and you had to feed it put it to bed and you know do all that stuff so so lucy is sort of the evolution of the tamagotchi and it's in it and you know because i obviously worked for a large entertainment media company um we're always sort of looking at what does it mean to build character relationships right mm -hmm. um why do people identify with dora or spongebob or blue or you know and 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 part of it is that belief structure that they are real that they are they're not a created entity from a bunch of people sitting in a studio drawing stuff and working on computers they've literally taken on reality right 
Um, all, similar to the way that, you know, as kids, we all played with, you know, dolls and G.I. Joe and, you know, Kung Fu Grip and all this stuff. It becomes real in your head, right? So now the power of computers makes that reality dynamic much more powerful. And, you know, then there's the two sides of the equation, much more dangerous also and much more appealing because you can connect to the algorithms of the human condition and start to make things believable in ways that we had to use this wonderful thing called our, our imaginations when we were little kids, right? We would go out in the backyard with, with characters and playthings, right? And it's funny, you, you hit on both the potential upside and the dark side. I, I want to try and keep it on the light side of it, but <laughs> uh, you know, you can de definitely see in the age of the, the, all the social media upheaval we've gone over the last particularly couple of years and how that data in, in this kind of use case could take it to a, a darker place. But I, I actually think there's in, in, you know, with the pandemic, I think this kind of one-to-one -one intimate connection with, uh, you know, mm. an imaginary friend is, it's meaningful, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I, I, I can only imagine, I mean, obviously it's probably pretty simple now. I've not experienced Lucy one-on-one -on -one yet, but I'm, I'm very eager to, um, I think, but the potential here, I think for, you know, sort of curing loneliness and curing isolation is is huge. Well, the 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 core demographic is fifteen to twenty five, and apparently that that audience is really responding. Yeah. And then is it principally in headset you're interacting with her now? No, no, at, at, decidedly out of headset. You communicate with her on Zoom. She calls you on the phone. She sends you uh, messages on WhatsApp and Messenger, and she kind of tries to insinuate herself into your life the way you know a friend would yeah it's pretty interesting so you get like random text messages hey what's up yeah, that's great. <laughs> let's hang out <laughs> so speaking of all that eric i don't know how much, how much time we have left or anything else on your agenda charlie but i would love for eric to mention some of uh, the planet we used to live on a couple of years ago and he and i would go on these amazing jaunts to china together and have incredible experiences in the world of this emerging media. I don't know if you wanted to just mention a little bit about sure, that. Sure. This is a great way to wind things up. Great idea. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Ted, you know, I think we've all been in this space for a number of years, but um, a good friend of mine, Eddie Lowe, uh, many, pop, many people, many of your listeners probably know him. Um, he asked me to co-found an immersive festival in China uh, called the Sandbox Immersive Festival. Um, and it's been probably one of my great life's honors. Um, we, we held two, two festivals, uh, 2018 and 2019, and then of course 2020 hit, and so we couldn't host it this past year. But Ted's been our keynote uh, the first two years. And awesome. It, we, we like to joke that it, we call it summer camp because it kind of yeah. feels that way. It's in June and it's kind of a who's who of VR, AR makers and creatives. And you, know, you get to spend a week in China, you know, eating, being Sort of catered to eating the best food but just like really like we wolves in the wall we showcase you know we showcase pretty much all the i think all the highlights out there and it's just been a wonderful wonderful time um and so I, hopefully this year we are actually we just i just talked to eddie last night we're trying to figure out a way to make it happen this year and, and um it's like many conferences please god don't do another zoom conference yeah we're trying to yeah exactly that's the con that's the conversation do we do it in vr chat or some other way you know that's you know obviously distributed in you have chat. you have to yeah 
because it's just, uh, you know, first of all, after a day of doing this, Ted, do you feel like doing this more? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a certain sort of mental exhaustion. Eric and I talked about it because we, we talk a lot uh, about what what has gone on. Actually, it, it leads to an interesting sidebar. Uh, last two days uh, with PwC, which is a, a, it has similar tenets to what Eric is doing at Media Month, it's a large consulting group. They work with all kinds of industries. They hosted a very large um, VR educational summit. Uh, they used a tool called Arthur VR, which is a, another yeah, one of, yeah, industrial sort of like tools that, and it worked pretty well. Um, but I would say, other than me and maybe the, the folks that were like hosting the event, it was the first time many of these people had been in VR. They were like, you know, CEOs of insurance companies and and data companies and 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 things that they, they have like real grown up jobs, like serious grown up right. jobs. And it was fascinating to listen to all the things that you and the three of us have discovered along the way is this spatial connectivity of people in the real world, even if it's an artificial real world, is so much different than the 2D Brady Bunch effect. Yeah. Um, and they were all commenting on how much they got out of it and how much they learned because people did virtual presentations with a virtual stage and people were gathered And, and around. I think the great thing about that Take All Space, for example, is that participants can be on a PC and in the case of spatial, even on a smartphone, this way, VR is not exclusionary. Right. You know, yes, VR has certain qualities and some people might prefer it, but other people, you know, don't have a headset, don't want to be bothered, are just going to get on on their PC and follow along. And I think that's a trend uh, that's going to continue. You have to meet people where they are. Some people will not tolerate the amount of friction created by putting on a device, mm -hmm. um, and in enterprises, those people are legion. You know, yeah. we're used to being in a world where people want to do that. I think there's but, a... But once you get into, I was working with the health system as one of my consulting clients. They were trying to figure out virtual collaboration, and the topic always becomes friction. Yes. Yes, it does. I think it, it's something that Tim and I have discussed previously as well. I think there's also a bit of a generational aspect. As much as the three of us are... Yes at the bleeding edge of this, you know, how often are you truly in headset? And well, you, you know what I heard from, from senior executives? Well, my kids got a quest and I tried it and yeah. I thought, yeah. you know, <laughs> you could use this for things other than games. And so they get curious and they start talking about it. So I, I think that's great. I mean, that curiosity is what's going to, you know, drive adoption and drive more people into headsets, that feeling that they're missing out, that they can't do what the other kids are doing. So that's the idea that we're bringing in people from PCs and showing them contrasting experiences uh, is gonna be great for VR. By the way, great for VR, speaking of great for VR, Rec Room backed into a close to $3 million number based on their percentage of free downloads from the Oculus Quest store. Then they're looking particularly at Quest 2 downloads. Mm -hmm. And um, based on how quickly and how large the boost has been, I think they've grown several hundred percent um, since the fall. Uh, you know, they're projecting three million headsets, which is what I was expecting to hear um, all along about their Christmas season. Uh, I was not buying that $1 million, not one million, one million number. Yeah, yeah. If if that one million number is true, then they've spent about a hundred dollars per headset on marketing. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, given that they're losing several hundred dollars a headset already, uh, it's it's hard to believe that uh, 
that they didn't ramp up they didn't go bigger than that especially after what happened with the quest one where they sold out and weren't able to fill the demand that they created through tens of millions of dollars of advertising so uh, i mean what is fair uh anyway anyway so it's fighting for the industry um and uh you know it looks like if they continue in the space that they will catch up to Sony by the end of the year, to PlayStation, which continues at 7 million headsets to be twice as big as Oculus, although their usage time is much lower. Yeah. So the people in the Quest spend more time in headset. Yeah. yeah, I'll be so interested to see what Sony does launch next in tandem with the power of the PlayStation 5. I think, you know, they, they are not going to let it go without a fight. And, and no, no, the, the fight C is going to be important. The, the CEO of Sony said they, they like VR and they see its potential, um, but he ain't rushing to build new hardware until there's more uh, of a there there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that may be sort of trying to explain what's already happened, which is console owners giving a big yawn to VR, Sony VR. Um, you know, 7 million out of 140 million install base is not super impressive. Uh, when you're in a world where the Nintendo Switch sells 12 million uh, pieces of hardware the day it goes on sale. Right, overnight, yeah, yeah, yeah. The day it goes on sale. And yeah. by the way, it's the same price as the Oculus Quest. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it wasn't, I think it still was brilliant of Sony to make it backwards compatible. You can plug in your PSVR to the PlayStation 5. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. they have. They have. So, I, you know, so I don't think we'll see a headset from them for a year or two, the CEO suggested. Uh, it would be later. They're not rushing it out. Um, so, you know, hopefully they'll they'll step up. It'll be more cross-platform. You know, they, they, they have to, you know, give their users, they do now through the games like Rec Room, uh, but they have to give their users a, a way um, to get to other app stores and to interact with, you know, the millions of people who are, you know, going to be colonizing different parts of yeah. the universe. And well, and the big thing for me is you have to get rid of the wire. You know, I mean, obviously the Oculus proved that the wire is the death call of the device and it will not survive and find well, it's, it's the wire and it's the gaming PC. But the wire to me is the big yeah. one. Like, yeah. the, like, like the, yeah. the freedom that we have by using a Quest or other, you know, fully wireless devices is so remarkable. And no, wire, inside out tracking is absolutely a must. Yeah. Have, you know? yeah. If you're going to compete, you know, you can't have uh, external trackers, and and you know that's kind of why why I like I, the reverb. But I, I agree, I, the wire on the reverb is a problem. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, and I tend to think the Quest was arguably the public V1. I, I think yes, I, I think that's exactly right. That's like exactly Rift right. and Vive, but previous, those were prototypes effectively to the public. When it, when it went wireless, that changed the whole game. Um, and yeah. self-contained, sixed off. So I, I always think of Quest as the proper sort of V1 from a public facing standpoint. And I still, you're gonna still need probably V5 before it goes like mainstream, right? Yes. I, I think we're still early days, but yes. The the self-contained all-in-one wireless that was that was the game changer to Ted's point. Totally agree. Yeah. So I think that's our show this week. Um, we had lots to talk about as always. Uh, Eric, thank you. It's been great having you. You'll have to come back and hang out with us again. I would love to anytime. This is this is fun. All right. Much love to all of you all of you who are listening and to you, my friend. I will see you next Friday. Thanks, Charlie. See you Thanks, next week. Friday. Thanks, Ted. We're out. Thank you.